Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water, and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him, before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, at about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. 
So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of the Lord. We saw last time that 1 Samuel 8 is not particularly against the idea of Israel having a king. Um, as we saw, Deuteronomy 17 had presented the kingship as, as a dangerous institution that was fraught with peril. The only time you adopt a king you ha is, is at the uttermost end of need. When Israel has reached the nadir of his existence, then and only then do you turn to the last resort, the kingship. If you remember, we had heard the warning in chapter 8, verse 7, Obey the voice of the people, God tells Samuel, in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So that sounds like it's saying that God says that their request for a king is rejecting him. But that's not what verse 8 says of chapter 8. According to all the deeds that they have done, it's not just asking for a king, it's according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. They're doing to you, Samuel, what they did to Moses. 
And God had told Moses. The people were not rejecting Moses, but the Lord, whenever they rebelled. The request for a king was simply the logical outcome of the failure of Israel. Israel had failed to do and to be what God had called them to do and to be. And as we saw last time, it wasn't the request for a king that was a problem. It wasn't even the the, the manner in which they asked. God had said, if you want a king like the other nations, you can... So when they say, we want a king like the other nations, that was exactly the way Deuteronomy had said they should ask. The problem is that with the exception of Joshua's generation, the people of Israel had continued to forsake the Lord more and more in each generation. God had called Israel my firstborn son. He had called them in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What would a son of God have looked like? What would a kingdom of priests look like? Well, a holy nation would have followed God's law. A kingdom of priests would have been a place where the surrounding nations would have marveled at the righteous laws which characterized Israel and would have repented of their sinful ways and joined with the people of God. Of course, a holy nation would also have endured the mockery and scorn of the unrighteous. Israel would have suffered at the hands of the nations, but they would have suffered for righteousness' sake. In other words, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation would have looked an awful lot like Jesus. Because that's what the firstborn son of God is supposed to look like. So when Israel asks for a king, they're simply saying, we have failed to live as the firstborn son of God. The story of, of here at the beginning of, of the whole the book of Samuel is here to tell us you know, the, the exile of the Ark of the Covenant that was sent into the Philistine hands had, had happened. The, the, the destruction of, of Shiloh. God forsook Shiloh. The Ark of the Covenant's captured. Why? Because Israel has degenerated into a, just another Canaanite nation. Eli's sons, the priests, are acting like pagan priests. And now Samuel's sons are acting like pagan judges. The glory has departed from Israel. Prophet and priest alike all practice deceit. And so Israel has asked for a king, like all the nations. A king to judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And God has said to Samuel, do what they tell you. Give them a king. And that sets up our passage for tonight. Because there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, verse 1 tells us that he was a man of wealth. Uh, the Hebrew phrase, Gibor Ha'il, conveys the idea of a mighty man of power. Which could easily imply wealth. But the picture here is of a strong warrior. This is a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul. A handsome young man. Uh, 1 Samuel gives us quite a bit of detail about the the calling and anointing of Saul. And the key to understanding Saul is found in verse 2. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul is everything a king should be. He is an impressive specimen of a man. He's good looking. He's tall. And remember that, especially when we get to Goliath. And as chapter 9 tells us, He is pious and faithful. And we'll hear about his abilities in battle in chapter 11. We tend to be very dismissive of Saul because we know the end of the story. But at the beginning of the story, Saul looks really good. This this looks like what a king should be. Our passage begins in chapter 9 
and then ends chapter 10 with the physically impressiveness of Saul, with his, his, his stature. And so I, I didn't read to the end of the chapter, but at the end of chapter 10, we get another statement of Saul's impressiveness. Now, that framing device, I, I, we're going to start with the end of chapter 10 next time, but that framing device shows how our passage fits together. And there's a secondary frame, which is the lost donkeys of Kish, because the, his donkeys are lost. And so the whole question is going to be, how do we go, how do we find that which is lost? That's, that's a picture of what the problem is. The problem is that Israel is lost. How can there be one who will go and find the lost donkeys of Israel? Now, The story begins with Saul being sent in search of the donkeys. Saul's encounter with Samuel comes about because Saul wishes to inquire of the man of God regarding his donkeys. At the very center of the story, Samuel tells Saul that the donkeys are found. One of the signs of God's choice of Saul involves a message concerning the donkeys. And the story concludes with Saul and his uncle talking about donkeys. So Saul is portrayed as a conscientious and diligent young man pursuing his father's lost donkeys. You might wonder, what's, what's the big deal? So what if you're missing a few donkeys? Eh. Well, okay. What does it mean for a farmer to be missing a few donkeys? That's like telling an engineer to design a project without a computer. A competent engineer will probably be able to do it eventually, but it that computer helps things move a lot faster. Or tell a contractor, go get a load of lumber, just uh, you can't use a truck, just get, walk. That's what donkeys are in the ancient world. Donkeys are essential for getting things places, for accomplishing tasks. The donkey is the basic tool of how a farmer gets things done. So not surprisingly, Saul sets out to find his father's wandering tools. So aren't you just glad that your truck doesn't just take off and leave in the middle of the night? I mean, if it, if it might do that if it gets stolen, but yeah, that's the problem with donkeys. Is donkeys have a mind of their own. Actually, that's part of why I think this works so great as a picture of Israel has a mind of its own, and Israel is like a stubborn donkey that is wandering off, and so Saul goes in search of his father's wandering donkeys. And they come through the land of Shalisha and all the, all the three different places that they're not there. If they have the Benjamin, they don't find them. And then they come to the land of Zuf. And all of you are going, ah, no, I know. Right. Okay, if you remember back to chapter one, you might be, oh, but yeah, who does that? The land of Zuf refers to, this is, this is Elkanah's hometown. This, uh, Zuf was the great-great-grandfather of Elkanah, who, Elkanah the husband of Hannah, Hannah the mother of Samuel. So this is, Sam, this is Samuel. So what, what our author is doing is he's hinting, for those who pay really careful attention, um, that we're going to encounter Samuel here, but he's doing it in the most roundabout way, most obscure way imaginable, because there's, you could give the name of the town, Rama. You could give the, or you, or the, but this is where he doesn't. He goes with the, I'm going to give you a clue, but let's see if you can find it. And also, he doesn't name Samuel until the middle of the passage. 
He's trying to, in a sense, sneak up on us slowly. Samuel's referred to as a man of God, a seer, a prophet. But only in verse 14 do we discover that this man of God is actually Samuel. But lots of hints are given. He lives in the land of Zuf. And all that he says comes true, which echoes chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And so when his servant says, come, let us... Let us talk to the the man of God in the city. And Saul at first is not convinced. And particularly it was considered rude to inquire of the man of God without giving him a present. Now, part of this is this is, this is just gift exchange culture. Uh, modern America tends to be very transactional. Uh, we want to have fixed prices for every service. But in a gift exchange culture, it's a very different system where you don't, it's, it's not really payment for services rendered. It's uh, we, we give each other gifts and things happen and isn't that wonderful. Um, now, incidentally, the, the Church of Jesus Christ still operates in some ways on the older system. If you think about it, if modern, modern Americans would never come up with the way we do church finance. By the way, I'm really, I'm really thankful for this because just imagine churches being run like modern businesses. We have membership fees um, for you know, if you want basic services. You pay a basic fee. If you want premium service, you... Oh, boy. Aren't we glad that we still operate in this older gift exchange model where we still think about things in terms of... It's not just value for service approach. I would tend to say that the modern American approach is abysmal, straight from the abyss. But... But Saul says, uh, but if we go, what can we bring the man? Our bread's gone, I've got no present, and his servant is the guy with the money. Who knows why? Probably his father had been like, you know, if you, if, you get, if you get stuck, here's a little extra, make sure you get through, get, get through. But at any rate, the servant is the one who has the answer to the problem. And he has a quarter shekel of silver and says, I, I will give it to the man of God. And, and Saul says to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they go. Now, it, it might seem to us somewhat trivial to ask a prophet about lost donkeys. But neither Samuel nor the author of the book of Samuel seems to think so. You can bring anything to God. Don't think that it's too small for him to notice. Did you lose your keys? Ask him for help to find them. In fact, the lost donkeys are the occasion that God uses to bring Saul to Samuel. So Saul and his young man come to Samuel seeking after their lost donkeys. And as they go up to the city, they meet young women coming out to draw water. <laughs> How many stories in the Bible have to do with young women coming to draw water? You're almost expecting Saul to find his wife here. I mean, that's just like... But, but he finds something better. He comes and they point him to Samuel and they tell him that he's going up to the high place and, and that there's, a, a, there's a, a sacrifice today and the people will not eat until he comes since he must bless the sacrifice and then those who are invited will eat. So they, they come in and they, the, to the city and, they, and they fi we finally hear, oh, the seer is Samuel and he's going up to the high place for a sacrifice. And you might be wondering, wait, wait, Going to the high places for sacrifice? Isn't, isn't there supposed to be the central sanctuary? And aren't they supposed to be offering sacrifices only at the place that God chooses? What's going on here? Well, remember where the, where the, the sanctuary was? Uh, 
in Shiloh, and that's gone now. The ark was captured, the priests died, and now, um, now what? The ark is back, it's in, it, but it's sort of in hibernation until God will raise up a, a, a faithful priest. So what is Israel supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to worship God. And Samuel is the prophet of the Lord. And so wherever... Samuel, you could say in a certain sense, is sort of like a walking temple. Wherever Samuel goes, this is where the presence of God goes. It's where the word of the Lord goes. It's, he is not the Son of God incarnate by any stretch of the imagination, but he is a picture of that. And he's showing... And so when he comes, basically wherever he goes, he offers sacrifices at the high places. The central sanctuary, David hasn't planned the temple yet. Solomon hasn't built the temple yet. That's where the story is going, but it hasn't happened yet. God has not yet chosen the place for his name. So he's coming to offer sacrifices. And as... uh, And then in verses 15 to 17, we discover that the Lord had already prepared Samuel for this moment because the day before, notice how our author sort of interrupts the story to say, oh, by the way, Samuel knew he was coming because the Lord had told him, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And then notice the second way that God puts it. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Yes, he will save my people. He will also restrain my people. Because this, I think, helps confirm our interpretation of chapter 8. This is not an anti-monarchical statement. It's an anti-Israel statement. Israel has failed to be the firstborn son of God. Israel has failed to accomplish what God had called them to do and to be. The only way that God's purposes for Israel can continue is for God to choose one man to now succeed where the nation has failed. God's teaching his people a principle, which is going to get even better when we get to Jesus. But... He has to show them the principle first. The the people have failed. And now there is one man who must succeed where the people fail. And that's where it's like there's this this exciting moment. Is Saul going to be the one who succeeds where Israel fails? Our author is building that suspense. Is this going to work? And Saul's a great option. He's, He's doing great so far. Israel was supposed to be the son of God ruling over the nations, but Israel itself as a wayward son now needs to be restrained and ruled like a stubborn donkey. And Saul will be the king who will do this, or at least he will start it. So when when Saul asks Samuel, tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel replies, I am the seer, and invites him to the feast. Because remember, Samuel knew about this yesterday. So Samuel has already now prepared Everything coming up. It's like, and this is where you think about Samuel, who is, 
He's been, call- he, he, he's been called, he knows, I'm going to have to anoint a king. God's going to show me who this king is going to be. And, and Samuel uh, is looking at this as, okay, <laughs> this, is, this is where we're going. And so he tells Saul that the donkeys have been found. And then he hints that there is something more going on than donkeys. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul's like, okay, that sounds strange. Um, But of course, Saul would have known, like everybody else, that there's this thing, petition going for a king. And so if all Israel is like, wait, what are you telling me? (laughs) And Saul answers, I'm a Benjaminite. Now, remember, that when he, you know, he, he refers to Benjamin as the least of the tribes of Israel. And he's not just being polite. The tribe of Benjamin had catastrophically failed at the end of the book of Judges. And they were nearly wiped out. And so over the last few generations, they've recovered some population. They're not quite so you know, destitute as they were perhaps a few generations earlier. But the memory of their failure still clouded their sense of identity as a tribe. And my clan is the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because I'm from Gibeah, the city that started the whole mess at the end of the book of Judges. I'm from the tribe that was nearly destroyed, and I'm from the city that caused the destruction. And you're talking to me? The memory of their failure clouds their sense of identity as a tribe, as a people, as a family. But God has a long habit of taking the weak and humblest of people and bringing about his glory. And we need to take, take this seriously as, as to where Saul is at. Saul is a good example of how God's covenant has a conditional aspect. God is calling Saul to succeed where Israel failed. If Saul had been faithful, then we'd be talking about how the house of Saul produce the Messiah. I mean, that's, that wasn't God's plan. That's not what happened. But, but, basically, but it's, not that, it's not that God set Saul up for failure and said, there's no way you're going to succeed. No, he called him to succeed. He called him to obey. And if Saul had obeyed, he would have become. I mean, it's, this, it's the same thing you have with Abraham. When God, when God called Abraham to walk before me and be blameless, the reason why we know about Abraham is because Abraham then believed God and did what he said. What if Abraham had responded to God by saying, wow, that sounds hard. I think I'm staying here. Well, then we never would have heard of Abraham. Sometimes God calls a person and he says, walk before me and be blameless, and the person doesn't do it. So that's where... It's a, in a sense, Saul functions as a warning of it's not enough to start well. You have to keep walking. Then Samuel takes Saul and his young man and brings him into the hall and gives them a place at the head of those who have been invited, about 30 persons. And, and Samuel goes to the cook and says, bring, bring out that leg. Actually, uh, I experienced this when I was in Eritrea. This, this, is, this is a custom that goes back millennia, but it still happens to this day. I was the honored guest, and so they brought me out the leg. And they set it before me. And then I started to eat it, and they laughed at me. They're like, that's yours. 
you eat out of the common pot. And then, so they're, they're like, don't, don't eat that yet. Wait, say that to the end. Eat, eat the, the common food first, and then you've got your special thing that's for, just for you. Uh, they were used to not having enough food, so it's like, they, they, they were sort of, they have a, they're like, no, no, eat, eat the stuff you got in common first. But, but that's where this, the practice of, of having the special portion for the honored guest uh, goes back millennia. And then Samuel provides a place for Saul to sleep that night. And in the morning, he takes Saul aside privately and anoints him as king over Israel. And it's this, in some respects, abrupt moment where sort of he's like, okay, send your servant down there and then pours oil on his head and kisses him and says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And then he gives Saul a sign and a series of signs. And as is often the case in scripture, we're told first, here's what the signs are. And then we have the details about the fulfillment of the sign. It's a good example of how God tells his people what he is going to do for their salvation. And then he does it. And then he has it all written down to tell us about it. It's not enough to have a promise. There must also be the fulfillment. And so Samuel tells Saul, here is what is going to happen. And then it happens, just as Samuel had said, fulfilling the word of Saul's young man. All that he says comes true. And he, So Saul tells him, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb. Rachel would have been his great-great-grandmother, many times great, because Rachel was the mother of Benjamin, who died giving birth to Benjamin. So this is a, an important landmark for his family history. And they'll tell you that the donkeys are found and now your father's concerned about you. The first sign is the answer to Saul's request, which also demonstrates that God had orchestrated the wandering donkeys in order to bring Saul to Samuel. Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. It's perhaps reminds us of the oak of Morah at Shechem, where Abram first built an altar to the Lord, or the oaks at Mamre at Hebron, where Abram also built an altar to the Lord, and where Abraham offered hospitality to three men. And now you will find three men going up to God at Bethel, who will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And then you'll come to Gibeah, to Gibeah Elohim, the hill of God, where there's a garrison of the Philistines. What you're supposed to do with those, them, is not specified yet. But when you come there, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This third and chief sign is that the Spirit of God will rush upon Saul. He will prophesy. He will become another man. And verse 9 tells us that when Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. He becomes another man. This will be an important thing in understanding what our text is doing. But he's no longer who he once were, was. And, and all these signs come to pass. And uh, 
Our, our passage ends with high hope. It says, God has given Saul another heart. The Spirit of God has rushed upon him. Now, when the Spirit of God rushed upon the judges, back in the book of Judges, they would almost immediately go out and start knocking heads. With Saul, nothing happens immediately. Because Saul is not supposed to be a one-shot wonder. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon him so that he might become another man, so that he might become the new man that will succeed where Israel has failed. But you'll notice that the Spirit and the Word are closely linked together. The coming of the Spirit upon Saul does not mean that he can now ignore Samuel. Hey, you don't need me anymore. He says, no, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. An important statement that we will come back to, but it'll take a little while to get there because the story slows down. We've been moving at high speed. It's going to slow down to a very crawling through these steps of what happens in this crucial moment in, in the people of God's history. But the Spirit gives power. But that power that the Spirit gives is only to be used in obedience to the word of the Lord. And this, this is something that we need to consider as we, because yes, we have received the Spirit that is from God. But too often we can try to use the Spirit in ways that are not in obedience to God's word. So um, we'll look next time at the proclamation of Saul as king. But uh, but for us, it's sufficient to close with the donkeys. Because when Saul comes home, his uncle says to him, where did you go to seek the donkeys? And when we saw we, they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul says, well, what did Samuel tell you? Because, I mean, he's just seen Saul prophesying. Everybody's sort of like, what's going on here? What, Saul? This is, Saul's not a prophet. What's going on? Something has changed in my nephew. Saul had gone in search of donkeys. What did he find? The verb to find is used 12 times in our passage. Saul and his servant did not find the donkeys. The servant found the prophet's fee in his bag. Saul and his servant found the girls going to draw water who urged them to find the seer. Samuel assures Saul that the donkeys have been found, as do the two men Saul finds near Rachel's tomb. Three men then find Saul near the oak of Tabor. And then, with God's powerful spirit upon him, in chapter 10, verse 7, Saul will find opportunity against Israel's enemies. And then Saul tells his uncle that, oh, Samuel told us that the donkeys were found. What did Saul find? He went in search of donkeys. What he found was a kingdom. What he found was God's purpose in bringing salvation to his people, God's purpose in restraining his people. When you think about what is it that Christ does as king, he subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us. And he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. What is God really doing? I mean, 
when, when Saul left on his trip in search of donkeys, he had no idea what God was doing. Very often, when you're looking for what God is doing in the midst of your life, it's hard to see. All we see is lost donkeys. All we see is this particular problem that I'm trying to figure out the solution to. But what is God doing? Well, if we expect that we're going to figure it out, we're, we're not actually paying attention. Because how is it that Saul wound up being in the right place at the right time? How did Saul get there? It wasn't that he was like, oh, I must go find Samuel so I can be anointed king. No. He got there by going in search of lost donkeys. He got there by doing the ordinary, obvious thing that he needed to do as a faithful son to his father, as a faithful follower of God. Ah, my father's donkeys are lost. I should go in search of them. It was a frustrating search. Couldn't find them. But it was only because he was kept searching. It was only because of the mysterious providence of his servant having a quantity of silver on him (laughs) that he wound up being in the right place at the right time, right where God wanted him to do precisely the thing that God had it purposed for him to do. You're not going to figure it out by trying to uh, ascertain what is God doing here. It's that by doing the things that God has called you to do, you will wind up in the right place at the right time. It's what we saw in the Psalms with, sort of, don't just do something, stand there. Sort of do, just take th- things that you're called to do, be faithful there. And what God is doing will come to pass because he's doing it. And that's the thing we have to remember. Lord, help us because we are forgetful. And we tend to forget that you are the one who has so orchestrated all of history and all of creation that, that you, your divine providences, your divine coincidences are indeed your own doing. That you bring people together at certain times who could not possibly have met in any other circumstance. And you accomplish this through through your mysterious providence that you don't tell us what you're doing in advance because if you did, we wouldn't even do the thing you've called us to do. So Lord, help us. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, to, to walk humbly and faithfully in the everyday things that we might not run after our own kingdoms and our own glory and our own agendas, but that we might seek first the kingdom of Jesus. We might humble ourselves before you, trusting that you will continue what you have begun until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how we thank you for Jesus. How we thank you that that you did not leave us to continue wandering searching for donkeys, but that you sent him to come to search and to seek 
for the, us who were lost. And that you don't call us donkeys, but you call us your sheep. You call us your people, your children, fellow heirs with Jesus. Lord, thank you. And have mercy on us for Jesus' sake and help us. Help us as we walk before you. Help us as we live before you throughout the coming week that you would give us eyes to see Jesus and ears to hear what Jesus is saying to us and hearts that love you and love one another. Lord, have mercy. May your light shine in the midst of our darkness. May your truth continue to be made known throughout all the nations that your glorious gospel might might go forth to the ends of the earth with great power, that all the nations of the earth might know that Jesus is Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.